I started trading tapes a few years later. So when I was 12 years old, I started trading tapes and my friends, I, I was asking them to send me things and, and, you know, I would occasionally buy tapes, 10, $15 a pop. I did the HTML for John McAdam in exchange for tapes. And John had a very extensive collection. So I got a lot of stuff from him. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling Podcast, where we talk about classic pro wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, generally. And we're going to talk 80s wrestling today. We're going to review Starcade 88. The 35th anniversary is coming up for that. Before I get rolling, um, if you would like to donate to this show, it is free. It is ad-free. Uh, go to PayPal and donate to Pro Wrestling Archives, all one word, at gmail.com. No amount is too small, and certainly no amount is too large. Uh, also, if you want to join our Facebook group, I solicit you every week for a good reason. A lot of good conversation, a lot of good talk. I am convinced that after the last Stick to Wrestling, people joined our Facebook group to tell me I was all wrong about Dave Meltzer and AEW, but that's okay. You're allowed to do that. Um, oh, and more great conversation. Did Tony Soprano actually die at the end of the last episode of The Sopranos? We're discussing that. So we're all over the place, and it's a lot of fun. <laughs> also, um, and now, Liv, let's get rolling with this. We have Christian Body joining us. Christian Body, excuse me, joining us for Starcade 88. Christian, 35 years is a long time, man. And uh, first and foremost, whenever this is being recorded, when it airs, I want to say to all the members, to you and, and Lou, and also to all the members of our group, our dysfunctional family, best of wishes to you for the holiday season. Happy New Year to you all. Blessings to you and your family. Please be safe and know that, you know, we're we're all in this together. And this, we've all become a bit of a family in our group, in our respective groups to stick to wrestling, broadcasts and pro wrestling and whatever. So blessings to you and the families. Blessings to, you, to all of you. And it's always good to call you guys friends and talk with you and speak about this business and about sports in general. So I was going to give you some news before you got on the air, but um, Shohei Otani just signed for 10 years, $700 million with the Dodgers. So we can talk about that later, but I just break, we're breaking that news because it just came across my phone. So sorry about that. No, that's okay. I was um, completely unaware that that news had broken. Uh, I won't stick to wrestling. I remember in 1979, we were talking about baseball in our classroom, and the teacher kind of gives us this look, and he's like, you know, someday it's coming. Someday we're going to see someone making a million dollars a year to play baseball. <laughs> I, just, I wish I could have said to him, yeah, and if you live long enough, you'll see someone making $70 million a year to play baseball. Yep. Wow. It's basically, uh, it's and also someone put someone put this in perspective. The largest NFL guarantee is two hundred thirty million. Shohei got seven hundred million dollars, and they, you and I were discussing before we came on the air. He's not going to throw a single pitch, so he's getting this amount of money just to be at DH. So you know, God bless him. Um, he's got the money, but this is that's unprecedented. If the Dodgers have it, God bless him. <laughs> he's staying in Los Angeles, and it was one good thing, John. He's not in our division. So Toronto and the, Yan the Yankees and the Red Sox don't have to worry about him anymore. Yeah. So he's, he's the Padres and the the, uh, the Diamondbacks headache now. But no, good for him. And that's a lot of money for you know him. But you know it makes it almost makes me wonder what Babe Ruth would have gotten had he been around. And that's that's something that that's an interesting because Babe Ruth actually plays the field, so he could have maybe gotten a billion. Who knows? That's a, that's a yeah. That's I mean. Babe Ruth, I mean, he's the greatest player of all time. And, uh, I mean, I, I, it's hard to imagine what he would have gotten. But, man, the, the, the benefits of having a good union, nice job and terrible job by the NFLPA, but as usual. But, anyway, we're going to talk about Starcade 88. True Grit is the was the name of the show. And for those unaware, there was a movie, a novel called True Grit that turned into a movie. And in it, John Wayne wore an eye patch, and now officially Dusty Rhodes is U.S. Marshal Rooster Cogburn with the eye patch and everything. <laughs> it's it, it was it was you could tell this was a Dusty Rhodes production, directed, written, directed, and scripted by Dusty Rhodes. But as we're probably going to discuss, this was kind of Dusty's last stand because you could the tide is shifting under his feet to where, as I said, we'll discuss later on what the fans thought of him. We know. 
what some of the guys in the locker room thought about him at that particular point in time. But the, the sad part about it is, I mean, not the sad part, it makes me think about the fact that there were almost two or three generations removed from fans that have no idea how important wrestling on Starcade originally was on Thanksgiving, but how important wrestling on Thanksgiving and Christmas was. Because a lot of us were old enough to now remember remember how important Christmas night, night was and how Thanksgiving night was. And now this was on a Monday, the day after Christmas. Fun fact, there was also an NFL playoff game that day. The Rams played the Vikings because they didn't play on Christmas Day, which was Sunday. So that, that, that's, that's something that people may not remember about December 26, 1988. It was a Monday. I didn't remember that. I didn't remember that I, I sacrificed watching an NFL playoff game to see this show. Yeah, it, was, um, it, was, it was on 2 o'clock in the afternoon because the, or- the Oilers played the Browns. On okay. I remember that. There was no game on Sunday, so they moved it to Monday. So it was funny to see we had basketball practice and coming home to see an NFL playoff game and then watching this. So it was. It shows you how different the sensitivities were about the NFL back then. Nowadays, the, the the NFL will put a game on no matter when. Back then, it was almost considered sacrilegious to put on a day on a game on Christmas Day or this, that, or the other. But now they'll 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 do that. But although no, the following no. year they did have a game on Christmas night between the Vikings and the Bengals, so I can't say they were too you know uh, averse to putting scheduling something on Christmas. Yeah, and and Starcade had been for the past four years a Thanksgiving event, and JCP had a big Thanksgiving event every year, even before they were calling it Starcade. And now, thanks to the Survivor Series, Starcade has been moved to late December. Not after Christmas. I mean, you mean the tradition of the two-year tradition of the of the Survivor Series? Uh yes. That's what cracked me up when Vince said that the, the tradition continues. I'm like, what tradition? Have you grabbing money? <laughs> it was like <laughs> it was like I don't think I think out of all the the territories of that era, Vince was the only one that didn't do anything on Thanksgiving. If I'm if I'm memory serves me correctly, but you know, yeah, no. Wilson, all of them, but he was the only one that did. So one year they had a show at the Spectrum, but most years he gave his crew uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas off. But the you know the business was changing. Our 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 public mindset was changing, and we're caring. You know, we're starting to care less and less about the, those holidays in terms of you know, hey, let's give these guys their uh, time with their families as well. It's like no, we want to be entertained, but make them work. Well, the NBA has always been on Christmas, so I guess that's basically what it is still it's just a matter of it's it, the tradition of Starkey not being on Thanksgiving is just to me is just very it was very sad that's just my take on it because you Thanksgiving night you know you always look forward to, it really it was like the end of the year you were ending the feuds and all that stuff was going on so it was just uh this this being bumped forward and the, the one thing I will give them credit in previous year they had it in Chicago they actually brought it back to a regular Crockett area like the scope of Norfolk Virginia um, you know, t- a traditional Crockett area as opposed to Greensboro or Charlotte. Although I think by the, then, they, then they were having problems with the North Car- in North Carolina, particularly in Greensboro. But it was good. They to were. See they them. burned Greensboro and Charlotte to the ground. Dusty's booking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it's that's not, for the record. Every time we do a, a Crockett podcast or any of us do it, it always seems like we're bashing Dusty, but we're trying not to. But he just made it so e- so easy. And also want to commend you guys in the last few podcasts. They were really excellent, including the world class one and the Starcade one. They were really great listens. And really, Thank you, I appreciate it. Really, really, really tugged at the heartstrings about what this business once was and what it, and what it meant to us. You know what? When we about a year from now, we'll be uh, reviewing Starcade '84. And I guarantee you, I'm going to have a lot of really good things to say about Dusty. Same thing about Starcade 85. But the reality is that, you know, every booker has his shelf life. And Dusty's was long gone by this point. And we talked about Dusty having the eye patch. Dusty ran an angle where, you know, the Road Warriors had turned heel by now. Right. And they attacked Dusty, and they, they took one of the spikes from their shoulder pads, and they jammed it into his eye. Now, WTBS had, you know, by this point, TBS now owns JCP, okay? Mm-hmm. Big change. Uh, I don't think anyone was happier in his role with his company than Dusty Rhodes was before that change came about. And now he's not a real happy guy. Now he actually has to report to people. They sent out an edict saying that they didn't want any blood 
or any explicit violence on WTBS. And what mm-hmm. does Dusty turn around and do? He right. he books an angle where they have one of the bloodiest and most violent angles of all time where someone gets spiked in the eye. <laughs> the funny part about that was three weeks earlier, they had done the, the Midnight Express turn. And if mm-hmm. you remember correctly, you know, Cornette is busted open. I don't think they needed to come out there yet, but it was... Cornette said in interviews that it was very cold in the studio. For those people who have never been to Techwood Drive, I have been. It didn't matter what time of year it was, spring, summer, winter, or fall, that place was brutally cold. And so he couldn't get blood to flow out, so he ended up like doing three or four cuts on his head, and it looked worse than it should have been. So at that point, if you remember, he comes out the next night with the bloody jacket. He's really a bloody mess. Shirt, jacket, the whole nine yards. Yep. And like, okay, I'm pretty. Uh, at that point, I believe Turner had just bought the company. Now, they may have sent the edict that said, hey, look, no more of this. That's kind of when we talk about the end of an era. We had gotten accustomed to Crockett to seeing certain things that were real, brutal, honest, flat out, you know, I would say that were real. It was presented as sport. When this angle came up, the funny part about this is the, the, the fans are cheering, and you can, someone, you can hear people chanting, stick the pig. If you, actually, <laughs> no, no. Right. If you watch subsequent re-airings of this, they dubbed this out and put in different noise because that had to be a blow to Dusty that, you know, this angle came out. This was I'm supposed to be the bull of the woods. I'm supposed to be the, the lead baby face. And these people are cheering my demise. As my friend said to me about we had just begun basketball practice, he came to me the next day and said, or a couple of days later, he said, you know, the Road Warriors could decapitate Santa Claus on Christmas morning and gut Rudolph in the ring and the fans wouldn't boo. It's like you couldn't. At that point, it was pretty embarrassing that the road was supposed to be these bloodthirsty whatever, and nobody wanted to boo them. And it's like, at that point, it had to be a blow to Dusty. It was either a shock or a blow, and it had to be like, well, well, what do we do now? We can't turn these guys. We can't have them this, that, and the other. I mean, and even that, if you watch this match at Starcade, fans are cheering the Road Wars. And it's – the road. What, what, several people in this group have said it, whether it's Chris Tabar or anybody else – Booking the Road Warriors was a, was a lose-lose situation. You couldn't beat them, and you couldn't turn them. So what could you do? And in this case, it really blew up on Dusty in that he tried to, you know, do the John Wayne thing again, true grit, but throwing that out there, and it didn't work. And in reality, it was, you know, it was kind of a, an unceremonious shove-off for Dusty when this when this all set, when, when the dust finally settled. But it was just showed that you, you, you like, like a coach has too much of a, of a of um of a shelf life as a booker does as well. So like 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 you said, has a shelf life, so does a coach. After a while they stop listening. Yeah, Dusty held on way too long. I think it was apparent uh, after actually coming into Starcade 87 that Dusty was, you know, at bare minimum, needed some time to recharge his batteries uh, as Booker. I went ahead in my notes, Christian, uh, to the Dusty Sting and Roadies match, and I'll read right from my notes. Turning the Roadies was a huge mistake. I could have and did tell people that it would cause fans to boo Luger, Sting, etc. Dusty is part of that, etc. And it was just a terrible, terrible mistake. It, I, like, it was a lose lose situation. The Road Wars were the first quote unquote people that came along where the fan, where fans said, "I don't really care what you do. We like these guys. We're not booing them. Okay, it's not going to work." and and really, I, I remember jokingly, I remember someone said, we had a conversation, this was about a month ago, because we were looking at a friend of mine said, what if the Rock and Roll Express ever wrestled the Road Warriors? I said, that would have been ugly. Because people people who weren't around back then, you had the little girls like the Rock and Rolls. The Road Warriors touched every demographic you could think of. They were kind of like Flair. They had, you know, at first the smart fans liked Flair, then everybody did. The, the Road Warriors, I guess, I guess you could say for better or worse, kind of smartened people up. As to tell promoters, we don't. You can show. You can try to give us something to boo, but it's not going to work. And the funny part is, when '89 turns around and Dusty's gone, the Road Warriors go right back to being faces again. It's almost like, oh yeah, it was like a Jedi mind trick or the Bobby Ewing trick in Dallas. Oh, it was all a dream, you know. Road Warriors are bad guys. They just, you know, they just they had a they had a momentary lapse in judgment. Them and Sting are on good good terms again. Get that? I mean, it. <laughs> I just was like, wow. It, 
I mean, they didn't even really turn them back. They just, you know, kind of fell into a pattern like, okay, you know, the Road Warriors are now feuding with Kevin Sullivan, Mike Rotundo, and Steve Williams. And, okay, I guess they're baby faces again. But there are people who were like, you know, oh, gee, you know, why didn't the, the Von Erichs book the Road Warriors for a dream match against Kerry and Kevin? I'm like, are you kidding me? You think Fritz wants to see his kids boot in Dallas? But they would have been. I I think I I don't know if the only person they probably I someone said would they have been booed against Hogan. I said I said I have to, I said I said I need to get back to you on that. Because I I it, nowadays I it's almost like we're talking about people that you had to be there. It's funny because we're the Michael Jackson documentary on thrillers almost saying you had to be there. When the Road Wars are hit, we tell them you had to be there. We can't describe to you when you listen to the pop when they run to the ring, you know. It was like a roar. It was like a rock concert. I mean, yeah. listen. What I would tell people: get the get the footage of the Crocker Cup in Baltimore and listen to the crowd when the Road Warriors hit the ring against the Midnight Express. Everyone's cheering, men, women, white, black, didn't matter. They they touched every demographic. It's like ice cream. Everyone likes ice cream unless you're lactose intolerant. But <laughs> they uh, everybody just loved them. It didn't work. I mean, and at the end of the day, it was almost like 88 was like a purge. They were just purging all the bad things that they could get out and say, we're not dealing with this anymore. We're just going to go back to what we what we think works. I don't even know from a booking standpoint who was in charge after Dusty left. So from this point, stand, it, it appeared to me that really from midsummer on, there was haphazard, haphazard booking because everybody I think was on eggshells like, who's going to buy the company? Who's going to be here? And then you have Tully and Arn leave. And then it's like, great, we just lost two of our main guys because the Booker pissed them off. And it's, you know, it's, it's just one of those situations where, again, we people always think we're always bashing. It's like, I hate to say this, but, you know, w- when one person is the cause of all this, really the centerpiece of this, and what Tully said was, Tully told the truth. Dusty needed to take himself off the top. He took that as an insult. What I feel like ask if Dusty was here, God bless, God bless the dead. What part of that's not true? You had Sting and Luger and Wyndham, and it goes back to the other thing that we can touch upon, the total mismanagement of the UWF purchase. And that's something we can touch on really on this show because there's talent that was, you know, like Steve, you mentioned Steve Williams. They spent almost two years not knowing what to do with this guy. So it's like, it's it's a whole situation where it's a, it's a cluster, you know what, of biblical proportions and we we can we're gonna we, we can do a deep dive into this and really touch upon a lot of interesting things that could have been done differently and truthfully from a common sense standpoint should have been done differently. You know, a couple of things I wanted to clarify a point. Um, I said that the the Von Erichs would have been booed had they brought the Road Warriors into Dallas. I'm not talking about a hundred percent of the audience, okay? I'm talking, but I'm, I'm talking a sizable percentage of the audience, certainly more than the Freebirds or Chris Adams and Gino Hernandez. You brought up an excellent point. What if the WWF had brought in the Road Warriors as heels and matched them up against Hogan? Hogan would have, same as the Von Erichs, a, a, a percentage of that audience would have booed Hulk, Hulk Hogan. No questions asked. It's the same thing when Flair showed up. Flair had a sizable chunk of the people that liked him. And the, the problem was you couldn't, I would say this: Vince couldn't brainwash people into saying, "Who are these guys?" Fans know who they were. It's the same thing. I mean, and I get and going back to the Flair point. It gave gave me um, give him credit for knowledge of who Flair was, but even when he brought the Road Warriors in, I mean, calling the Legion of Doom was was an insult in, in and of itself. But I, you know, fans had become jaded, and you know, it was what I, what you and I, the last time you and I were on the podcast, you talked about the antihero. It was an era when. The bad was seen as, you know, we're a year removed from the, the film Wall Street coming out. Gordon Gecko was seen as someone to be, to be admired. Being bad or the anti-hero or anti-establishment was considered cool. The Road Wars were definitely that. And, you know, the Four Horsemen were definitely that. And it's it's to the point where I guess maybe that's where the lines become blurred. You can't really tell fans to boo people anymore or cheer for that person. But ultimately, I think, I think the Road Wars shelf life probably um, – you know, in Crockett, it, it was it had near kind of its end, but they still held on with them and tried to make something work with them. But it's it's they still could be used, but I think you needed a creative book or a creative foil that could have um th- that could have uh, actually done something with them. I don't know who you could have brought in. They, I mean, they did bring in the Freebirds, but unfortunately, Gordy was splitting time between them in Japan, and that's uh that's 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 another that's another topic. So. 
Yeah, I mean, the WWF was, you know, after Terry Gordy right around this time. They actively were pursuing him, and he turned them down uh, because he was happy, you know, working part-time in Japan, uh, making lots of money there, and being able to rest his knee while he was sitting at home. And so, you know, it, it took a lot for the NWA to even get him in part-time, which they did for a little while in 1989. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you what, let's go, let's talk about the show, mm-hmm. Starcade 88. Uh, Magnum TA is being part of the introduction. And I, I really liked Christian, the way they used him as far as, okay, you know, he's, he can't wrestle anymore. I think by this point, you know, his accident was over two years ago and we, we you know, Everyone's got to know that he's not coming back, but they're at least giving him an, an on-roll camera at least for a little while. He'd be gone pretty soon, but on this night, I thought I thought he was used really well. He was. I'm, I'm happy for him. The fact that Magnum is still with us, God bless him for that. I'm glad they used him. Um, it's good to see him. I mean, you can't think of Starcade. I mean, really, the match that we all think of, regardless of all the eras of Starcade, we still think of the I Quit match. It's the one that resonates with us, all of us who grew up in that period of time. If you, talk, if you say Stargate, I can just still see Magnum in the ring you know, with Tully. And I'm glad they used him. And then he and Jim Ross worked, worked really well together. I mean, I think it was it – was, it was, he, he was good on the mic. I mean, he had been, been with the UWF working with Jim Ross for about a year at that point. So they used him for interviews and things of that nature. And I'm, I'm sure it kept the spirits up to be around the guys and not feel like a third wheel or a crutch. He wanted to be around them. And I think he, he's expressed that in interviews that it did a lot for his psyche to be around the guys at that time. And they treat them treating him as not as a charity case, but as one of the guys who was to hang out in the locker room and things like that. And again, the fact that he's able to walk and breathe after that car, if you saw, if we saw the pictures of the car, you know what we're talking about. It oh was, yeah. Uh, it was, it, like I said, it is a miracle that he is, that he's here. God bless him for being there. And I'm glad that he, uh, that he is able to, uh, that he's still around. I mean, supposedly it took them hours to get him out of that car. That's how bad the, the wreck was. And you're right. You know, people, after a, a traumatic accident like that, I mean, it will d- almost always take years off of your life, if not decades off of your life. And Magnum, you know, like you said, God bless, he's still around. The opening match is Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Kevin Sullivan against the Fantastics. Christian, you had talked about how they had had Steve Williams since April 1987, since the uh, they bought the UWF and they didn't know how to use him. Mm-hmm. I think this is the best role they use Dr. Death in as a heel with the Oklahoma singlet working with the varsity club uh, and not really replacing Rick Steiner because he was, he came in uh, a few weeks before Steiner's turn. But I mean, this was the ultimate way, in my opinion, to use Steve Williams as a, a tag team with Mike Rotundo challenging the road warriors. And those are two guys that, you know, you look at them and you're like, okay, I can conceive of the road warriors losing this one that, you know, Steve, Dr. Death Williams is a really big guy with, uh, you know, athletic credentials and same thing with Mike Rotunda. I agree. The, the varsity club to give it to me kind of, it was kind of worn thin for a little bit, but this, I often call this mess, how to mismanage the UWF talent because the fan, they're wrestling for the U.S. Tag Team Championship, but the funny part is that people always forgot that that belt existed after I think the Midnight Express let those belts go. It's a good match. I mean, Bobby and Tommy were exceptional. I just think they never got over in Crockett because to them, the fans, they, they were always seen as, you're not the Rock and Roll Express. And I think Dr. Death, would, when they put him over with Rotunda, that works, you know, because they're both kind of, they're good guys in what they do. They can work. They can be stiff. Then with the Road Warriors worked. I guess the whole thing with Games Master Kevin Sullivan kind of wore thin with me. It's kind of like, we get it. You're supposed to worship the devil. It's not shocking anymore. You know, it worked in Florida in 1983, but again, we're at a stage where none of this stuff shocks people. It's a good opening match. I've always noticed that Starcade usually opens with a tag match to kind of get people, kind of rope people in. And this was a good match. It was good flow. I mean, Doc and, Doc and the Fantastics have worked together before. So there's familiarity. It was a nice match, you know, Kevin and then get the pin, but it, it just made the Fantastics. To me, it was kind of the end of a bad year for them because they, they started out hot with the Midnight Express, then they just died, you know, and it's like they, they could never really figure out what to what to do with them after, you know, that feud with the, after the bash match with the Midnight Express. 
you know, uh, once again, right from my notes, uh, they needed a role for the Fantastics. They were so good. And to me, they're, they're, you know, they're over with the girls. Mm -hmm. They are an excellent in-ring tag team, arguably one of the best of all time. I've had people tell me, you know, no, they were better than the Rock and Roll Express. And maybe they were in 1988. I mean, they needed to find something for these guys. And even if it's just in the middle of the card, you know, or even near the bottom of the card. And I would think that Tommy and Bobby would have preferred doing that as opposed to having to live on the cheap in Dallas, which is what they wound up doing uh, soon after this show. Right. Didn't, didn't they bring back Jackie Fulton with Bobby Fulton or something? I, it's, I try to remember what they did with that, but Bobby Fulton and, and Jackie Fulton were the Fantastics in Smoky Mountain. And before okay. that, they were the Fantastics in Japan. But I mean, I like Jackie Fulton, but he was no Tommy Rogers. Exactly. It's, it's like, you know, once you, Tommy, Tommy to me was, he's sort of like the, what I call the Bobby Eaton or the Ricky Morton, where he's the pulse. And, you know, he, he, uh, he's, without him, it's not the same thing. And he was really, really good. And this, and this was just, uh, again, it's a shame that they lived in the shadow of the Rock and Roll Express and couldn't get out of it. Not just, not just from here. I mean, in Mid South, when when the Rock and Roll also lose leave town, they bring in the Fantastics. And you're right to a certain extent. They actually had better matches than the, with the Midnight Express in '88. That was, I believe, that was the feud of the year in uh, in the Observer because their matches were insane. I mean, if you if you watch the class match and watch a lot of them, they're as good, if not better than what, um, you know, the Rock and Roll Express had in terms of, you know, not maybe not a full body work, but they were, they were very, very good. And I, and it's a shame that um, that Tommy's no longer with us. I mean, it's, it's amazing how many people on the show are no longer with us. Steve Williams is no longer with us. And that's, watching the, sh- watching the show again, I watched it on Wednesday night. I, I wrote down, I said, wow, there's a lot of guys here we're speaking about in past tense. And that's that upset me a great deal looking at the show. You know, I remember when Tommy Rogers died and I heard heard about, you know, how he was living in Hawaii and he got into a fight with the cops and all this. And it was like it was crazy. Tommy Rogers was one of the nicest guys I'd ever met in the wrestling business. Just a super sweet guy. And I don't know what the hell happened to him at the end where he's where he's getting in legal having legal issues. I don't know. It's almost weird how many people in this business end up in legal or financial difficulties, and it's, it goes back to what people talk about having a union or something. But it's just, uh, it's really, it's really, it's really unfortunate. And, I, and too many of these people have left us in situations where we're going, "Wow, that person, you know, needed help." And wh- where were people to help them out? And that's sort of something that we have to look at as well when we talk about, you know, one of these guys that uh, that could this could have been prevented. So many of these deaths were could be prevented. and That's one of them. Yeah, it, it was really, like I said, when I started hearing the stories after he died, you know, it was very sad because he was like a Rick Martell level good guy. He's got his head screwed on sc- straight. Mm-hmm. And as far as, you know, when I knew him a little bit, I'm not saying I know, knew him, but I mean, I was around him a couple of times, Just, you know, an excellent guy. But anyway, Doc and Sullivan against the Fantastics was an excellent match. Uh and a big surprise, Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Kevin Sullivan win the United States Tag Team titles. And like you mentioned, Christian, they were qu- those titles were compl- quickly forgotten about. And I almost hate to say it, but they should have been. Uh, this promotion had too many titles at this moment during Starcade. Now, uh, one, the first really big match of the night, the Midnight Express. Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton against the other Midnight Express, the original Midnight Express, Randy Rose and Dennis Condry. This was an excellent match, Christian. Mm-hmm. Randy Rose worked his butt off all night. But my thing is, I just don't think that either. I mean, certainly Randy Rose. I like Randy Rose a lot. He he just didn't have the charisma to be in this role. And if Dennis Condry is the guy carrying the charisma department in 1988, you've got a problem on your hands. I mean, this was, I almost hate to say it. This was a, a, this feud was a bit of a demotion in my opinion for Bobby, Jimmy and Stan. I think if you remember correctly, Jim Cornette said this in interviews, we went to Dusty and said, we have no one to work with. We've done the fantastics. We totally and arm were gone. And it's like, well, what what else are we going to do? So they brought him in. Now they start off House of Fire with that great 
angle on TBS. We all saw it. And according to Cornette, the first thing they said, the first time they wrestled him, believe it or not, was in Las Vegas at the um, the showboat. And J.J. was calling the finishes, and he said, 20-minute Broadway. They were like, well, wait a minute. Have him screw us. Have him, you know, cheat to beat us, this, that, or the other. And they said, nah, they had 20-minute Broadway. And they said a lot of people thought that Dusty was mad because it wasn't his t- it wasn't his feud. But in terms of this match, it's not just um, – you know, Dennis and Randy, it's the fact that you saw the difference between the two expresses that Bobby and Stan truly were the superior team. And dare I say it, Cornette was really the superior manager because, you know, it, when you have a situation where, you know, Cornette's really kind of, you know, taking up the scenes and taking up the, the situation, it doesn't look good. I mean, it's they turned the Midnight Express. The Midnight Express, again, were part of what I call that, that situation where they had fans even before they turned, but Turning him face, I guess maybe took away their edge to a certain extent. But in this case, looking putting him against Rose and Conjure really kind of showed that basically, you know, there's a reason that, you know, Bobby and Stan are thought of differently than Bobby and Dennis. And it, I think this match kind of, you know, led to Dennis saying, you know what? I, yeah, I'm not going to, I'm not too warm to this that much longer. I think he was gone shortly after that. So it was. It's 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 a great match. It was. It had this been the blow off, and they not tried something in Chi-Town Rumble, it would have been different. But they, it only been going on for a month. I don't know how much longer they could have kept this feud going, unless the title was involved, or unless something else was going on with it. I think they had invested too much in the feud to have just one match and have the feud be be over. I mean, I, I've mentioned this on the show before. You know, sometimes I would find out what was going to happen in advance, okay? Right. And I knew that Paulie and the Midnights were on their way in, and they they were going to attack the the Midnight Jim Cornette and the Midnight Express, and there, it was going to be like you know. As Jim Ross said, they don't even work here. Like I knew it was coming, mm-hmm. and it was one of those times where I was really disappointed that I knew something because I would have loved to have been shocked to have seen Polly dangerously uh, show up on WTBS and and Dennis Condry turning on on his old you know on his old teammates you know yeah. Jimmy and Bobby I, you know. But like I said, I I knew it was coming, and that took something off of it. Even though I still thought it was great. I mean, Jim Cornette getting busted open like that. Yep. on national TV was just such a moment, yeah. an, an iconic moment, moment, dare I say. Yeah, and then the interview the next day when he, when someone said what made Cornette great when he silenced the TBS audience by raising his hand. I mean, they were all chanting, and he just raised his hand and said he had to make a point. I mean, when he came out with the bloody jacket, I mean, it was like, you know, that he said, that's real good, Paulie. That's worthy of even me. And I just was like, I mean, tipping his cap to him, but he, but he basically, basically when Cornette says, you know, I'm – I'm the jerk here, and if anybody's going to be a jerk on TBS and then the NWA, it's going to be me. So, it, but the the thing was that you know I don't know how you know it was the first time really that Cornette had an manager he could really play off of. Maybe I guess since Paul Ellering, or even going back to J to JJ Dillon, because again it goes back to that feud when JJ and, and Cornette went mouth to mouth and mano a mano. You know, Cornette guzzled him as to use to yes. use a, to use a, a Bill Watts term. He really embarrassed him, and it was like. You pretty much saw that, that, that yeah, when, when he said J.J.'s so old, he wore wool tights. It's like, my God, I was like, wow. I mean, Cornette, <laughs> yeah, he, he, he so, I mean, it's like, it's 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 a situation where you, you, you when you do the one-liners, it works. Paulie was more like, pardon the pun, dangerous. He was really like psychotic, where Cornette was more humor. So it kind of, um, it kind of I guess you could say it kind of worked. You had the yin and the yang. But for the most part, it was really, it, it, to me, it was a feud that had potential, but I didn't know if the, you were ever going to have a satisfactory into it unless uh, unless it involved the title. And then when you take the U.S. or the world title out of it, you know, that's kind of uh, that's kind of what the, the hand you dealt with. Well, yeah, I mean, and they made it a very personal feud, and it was a personal feud. I mean, I, I remember back in the day, Paulie didn't have very many good things to say about Jim Cornette. And to this day, Jim Cornette does not have good things to say about Paulie dangerously that all said those two worked wonderfully together they had great chemistry even when yep. Jimmy turned back heel they had great chemistry and uh mm-hmm. you know Paulie I thought he was great in Memphis in 1987 I thought he single-handedly in 1987 made the AWA show worth watching exactly. but now he's even gotten better he's, he's at a whole nother level I I, th- I thought 
at this moment, Stark 88, I thought he was as good as Jim Cornette. And that's not a knock on Cornette. That is me praising Paulie dangerously. I agree. I mean, Memphis in 87, he was insane. Because I remember watching it thinking, him, Austin Island, Tommy Rich. I'm like, how do you turn Tommy Rich heel? But it, but he somehow made it work with him. When he got to the AWA, he was the best thing about that show. Because at that point, the, the AWA really had nothing. And then he sort of, like you said, he single-handedly made it worth looking at because they uh, they they made it work. I mean, I think I don't think T- TBS let him be as crazy. And once Cornette left, he got to shine a little bit because he's the only heel manager left at that point. So he kind of you know was given free reign to kind of do what he wanted to do. But it was a situation where when you have no one to play off of for a little bit of time, but like Paulie had, I think around after Cornette left, it kind of took not a little bit of his edge off, but it didn't really give him much to do. And I think every manager needs a foil. And whether it's a, whether it's a person, another manager, or, or another wrestler, Paulie didn't have it. I think Paulie's best served in the antagonizing role as opposed to, you know, just staying by the ringside like some managers and doing nothing. But this that that match really showed them both because the, watch the, the, the way they work at ringside. They both do great things. And Cornette's getting the crowd into it, banging on the, the ring mat. And, it, again, it was it was very good. I just wish it could have had a different finish or the feud could have had a different finish because we might have gotten, you know, I don't know, a lengthier feud because we never got to see the end of Tully and on. This could have been something that could have, you know, so, replace that but it, dusty I, I don't know who was in charge of booking after this happened but it, it was never done correctly it was after dusty was fired uh jim heard for a little while was in charge of a booking committee and then they brought in george scott which right. was a complete disaster but anyway two quick points the, i've always believed that there's very rarely is there such a thing as a guy who, you know, he can't be a baby face. He can't be a heel. Of course he can. The better you are as one, the better you're going to be as the other thing. Paulie is one of those guys. I could not picture him ever being a baby face. He was funny. I loved him and I can't picture him ever being a baby face. Christian, you had mentioned that, you know, Jim Cornette really outshined J.J. Dillon in that feud, and he certainly did to the point where the rumor out there was that the uh, Clash of the Champions match between Ric Flair and Barry Windham, uh, when they went over clean over the Midnight Express, uh, Stan and Bobby, it was to placate J.J. Dillon because he was, you know, or, or to... Yeah, it was kind of to placate him and to kind of show the fans that, oh, he's not really that bad a manager. Well, what cracked me up was, I mean, the, when the Midnight Express Tully and Arnold feud first started, it started rather innocuously. You remember it was right after the bash, and Cornette in a one-off interview says, we beat everybody. It's hard to beat somebody we don't get a match with, you know what I mean? And it's like, my, my brain was like, where's that going? And then the first time they confronted him, you know, at ringside, and you know, Cornette points right in his face. JJ, he goes, JJ, you better watch yourself. He said, we beat everybody else except you, but it's hard to beat somebody when you don't get a match with them. You just remember that, friend. And I remember he walked. <laughs> that and I, was great. He goes, he says, I mean, the, I mean, and the point was this. I said, I mean, they were trying to midnight express. Like, yeah, you don't need the world tag team dollars. And, and Stanley's like, what do you mean we don't need them? <laughs> what do you mean we don't? <laughs> oh, I get it. As long as we play the background in your foreground, we're cool. No. <laughs> and and Cornette's like, look, after we beat you, we'll still be friends, right? And it's like, <laughs> when he says we beat everybody but you, but it's hard to beat somebody you don't get a match with him. Remember this, friend, and he walks off. <laughs> He's right. It's like, if, you, if we're friends, hey, we can we can compete. And after I beat you, if we're not friends, I guess we weren't friends to begin with. But <laughs> it was, it, it's, it's funny that feud took place the same year that the Pistons played the Lakers in the finals and was like, Isaiah said he drove to the basket and, him, and Magic knocked him down. He said, yeah, we're not friends. You're coming for what I got. And that's the same way you have to look at it. If we're competing, we're not friends. So that's <laughs> that's always been my, my the way I looked at uh, at that feud. But the fact that they had to placate J.J., he had to know. I mean, J.J.'s one line is trying to come back making fun of Cornette's mother. I'm like, we sat around with these little tables, these little cups. I'm like, what are you talking about? I mean, <laughs> Cornette went right for your throat, and this is your response? Yeah, like I, you know, again, it's, it just shows that Cornette, like Cornette and Heenan are just we're on another level. Bobby the Brain Heenan, God bless the dead. They they were on another level that others aren't at. And if you didn't see that, we're sorry to tell you, but they really were on another level 
that the others <laughs> could did very rarely do people reach that type of rarefied air, but they did. And it's like get, tape tape really doesn't do them justice because they they kind of really set a, a, a standard that others were incapable of reaching. And so you kind of have to watch more. You have, you have to get their full catalog to see how great they really were against each other. No, that was the Midnight Express against the Horsemen or against Tully and Arm was kind of the greatest feud that never was because they they had the feud started and it was supposed to be at Starcade and uh, obviously Tully and Arm both quit. I was there that night in Philadelphia, by the way. So it's like, I mean, we were all in shock. So it was kind of like, it was just supposed to happen. And then we just kind of got mad when we found out they left. It was like, of all the people to go to Titan, them it just to me it just never it never fit you know what they what they wanted to do. But it's it's unfortunate they had a cage match. They were supposed to have a cage match the next month in Philadelphia. It was supposed to be Tully and Arn versus the Midnight in the Cage and JJ versus Cornette in the Cage. That was supposed to be that was the next month in Philadelphia after they lost the belts. But as we all know, that we never got to see that again. Ah, now that's that's interesting. I I never knew that, yep. and I'm surprised they would announce that because I mean it was well known in the company that that was going to be Tully and Arn's last night. Uh, that's why they lost the belts. They were on their way to Titan the next day. And I'm surprised you know no one stepped in. I wouldn't say they didn't announce it. They had a cage match scheduled anyway. Oh, that was, okay. That was supposed to be the next next month. If you actually there's a handheld version of JJ versus Cornette in the cage out there. But I think it was the Midnight Express versus the Fantastic. The next phase of the feud was supposed to be cage match. After they, um, because they started, I think mid to late August of, of that year. The only thing, I think Cornette said they only did twelve dates, and by the time they got around to Philly, that's when Tully and Dusty had the brouhaha, and they pretty much said, "Yeah, we're out of here." I think Tully was the one that was leaving. Arn just said he was coming with him because they were obviously partners. So Tully coming without Arn wouldn't have been you know, that effective. But I think Tully said he was really surprised that Arn came with him. But it's that, to Warren's credit, he did. But we we lost out on a few at that point. They had to revitalize the business, revitalize a lot of our, a lot of fan interest in it. We were like, man, this is good stuff. It really was. Now we're going to see what we want to see. And then all of a sudden, I'm not really, I've never really been big on heel versus heel matches. But in this case, I made an exception because we, it, I just thought it was so good that, yeah, we after sitting through months of just you know dull stuff, we had to we, we needed to be rewarded with something with that, and we uh, we basically got. That. Well, it wasn't going to be heel. It was going to start as heel versus heel, but by the time Tully and Arn left, the Midnights had pretty much already turned. I mean, when they did the angle where uh, Tully and Arn beat up Stan and bloodied him up in the dressing room, I mean right. that that kind of establishes who the the heels are in that feud. And I think maybe the week after that aired, they left. Right. I think the thing was is that both both groups had subsets of fans because the minute Stan joined the Midnight Express, fans started liking them. I, or, they, or dare I say this, they became more cosmopolitan looking as opposed to Bobby and Dennis who looked like just a more of a Southern team. With Bobby and Stan, it was a more streamlined look, you know, so. No, I, I 100% plus agree. They, plus they were better in the ring. I mean, Eaton and Lane in the ring, and you remember this, they made their debut in your backyard, the Boston Garden. A week later, at the Cracker Cup, they pretty much steal the show. They had great matches. I mean, Bobby and Eaton Lane are the best team I've ever seen in the ring. I'll, I'll argue that's on blue in the face. So you, you, you can have a lot of other teams. To me, they were the absolute best team I ever saw in the ring together. And they were red hot in 1988. And 35 years later, I am still bitter that they they just poured ice water on them. And then this feud was yep. kind of the beginning of that. And no disrespect to Paul Lee or Randy Rose or Dennis Condry. I just don't right. think I thought the Midnight Express were, were better than this feud. It was a great feud, right. but it just kind of, you know, one minute you're feuding with the Road Warriors and the Horsemen. The next minute you're with Randy Rose and Dennis Condry. But anyway. Next up, Junkyard Dog and Ivan Koloff against the Russian Assassins. Um, this was supposed to be Ivan and Nikita Koloff against the Russian Assassins. And with Nikita gone, this feud made absolutely no sense. <laughs> I feel a little bit bad for the guys who were the Russian Assassins, Jack Victory and, and Dave Sheldon, because uh, Dave Sheldon took this as the opportunity of a lifetime. He started learning how to speak Russian in order to get the gimmick over. So, I mean, you know, that's effort. 
and but it just didn't work. That's something I didn't didn't know. Was this when Nikita's wife got really sick? I know she's been sick before, but is this when his wife uh, really began uh, began to get sick? Because I mean, it, to have Ivan, the person who pretty much scared every single person in the, in the NWA for how many years, <laughs> be not be a babyface and with junkyard, it just didn't even look cosmetically good. I was going to say the less said about this match, the better, but it, it was okay. Ivan, as always, gave you his best efforts, who may have been one of the nicest people. you've If you've never met, I met Ivan Kolov at a convention about before he passed a long time ago, one of the nicest people. You would have never thought this man that pretty much scared all of us for years. <laughs> was this man who, who read books and would recommend books to you about, you know, literature and poetry and philosophy. He was just a great guy, but... It was, he was he was a really really good person and and this it, in my opinion Ivan is better than this in my opinion Ivan Koloff well first of all I've met both Ivan and Nikita I met them together kind of briefly and right. you know both really good guys outside the ring mm-hmm. uh, Nikita he was over pushed from the day they brought him back at the Clash of the Champions. Uh, uh, the, the first clash of the champions, he just didn't look like he wasn't the same guy as he was in 1985 and 1986. He just didn't, he wasn't big enough. He wasn't menacing. I, you know, it was almost like, okay, what's this guy doing here? And now he's feuding with the Russian assassins. And I don't know if his fiance Mandy, if her condition, you know, got significantly worse around this time. Um, but I do know that Nikita, he just wasn't happy with his push. He wasn't happy with his money. Right. You know, Dusty had always protected him, and now Dusty was no longer the booker, so he was out of there. Right. And as far as this match goes, it sounds awful on paper. It was actually, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad at all. I'm not saying, you know, drop what you're doing and go watch it because it's so great. But, you know, they kept things going going and it was it was the worst match on the show which gives you an idea of what a great show this was exactly again it was a filler match um it's just as far as i'm concerned like i said it was just there and once once you see i think nikita kind of lost his image when he grew his hair out that was kind that's kind of part of it you know he came back he came back looking you know like i did here's that word again cosmopolitan and looking uh you know like he he was not nearly as, ju- I'd say, as juiced up as he was. He'll never be as Not real. nearly as much. He'll, he'll never be 85, 86 again. You started to notice it in 87 when, you know, he was up against Luger and he looked rather soft. And it's, it's it was, um it, to me, this was a situation where the, the matches had to happen. You couldn't really not have it go on. But it's, it, again, Ivan gives a great effort and so did the Russian assassin. I didn't know that was, I didn't know, I knew, I recognized Jack Victory, but it was, um, it's it served its purpose. It's not something you'll fast forward too hard. It's not something you're going to say, "Ooh, let me watch this." So it's not it's not really that bad. But you know, the show was it, it didn't d- d- detract from the show in any way, shape, or form. So that's something no. good to be said about it. No, because I hadn't watched this show in its entirety in I don't know how long, a long time. And you know, as soon as this match comes on, I'm like, oh god, I got to sit through this. And it was not bad at all. And right. that's the worst match on the show. That, that once again shows you what a good show it was. Yep. Christian, in my opinion, though, I, as much respect as I have for Ivan Koloff as, as I had even 35 years ago, it was time for Ivan Koloff to go. It was time for Paul Jones to go too. Yep. And again, without this. Could Ivan Koloff has worked out have worked out as a baby face? Maybe if Nikita's there, he's the you know mm-hmm. sympathetic, getting older uncle of Nikita's. But with without Nikita, like it's over in 1988. He could have been the manager, or they maybe they could have found something for him to do. Uh, again, we talked about this. This is the first pay per view under Ted Turner under the ownership of Turner. It's almost like this is we're saying goodbye to all the cro- all the old Crockett people, whether it's. Nikita, Ivan, Paul Jones, whoever else you want to, Dusty, whoever else you're tossing out there, and we're, this is kind of the end of that era. And I don't, it, it almost seems to me like we're also losing the importance, like say, of managers because Cornette and Heyman are there as well. But you know, Paul Jones to me, what did someone call him, number two Paul Jones? Because yeah. he never, he never, like you, like we've discussed, and I've heard this in other podcasts and other guys have put this in the group. He was there as a favor to Crockett. That, or favor, you know, he was a friend of what uh, Jim Crockett Senior, I believe, and they kept giving him push after push after giving him Rude and Fernandez, giving him this, that, and the other. It's almost like he, I never really took him seriously, and they kept they kept pushing him with Jimmy Valiant. This is after a while. It's like 
he's the most un he's the most I, I don't want to use this is too harsh a word, maybe but he's just he doesn't fit. He doesn't do anything well. His promos aren't great. He doesn't manage anyone of of significance other than Rude Fernandez. You know, and even that came out messed up. They turned Manny and that didn't look great. So it's just you know, giving a Rick Rude to me did Rick Rude really need a manager? Um, you know, it's just this is it's an old way of saying goodbye. So as far as I'm concerned, I'm just I'm just glad I'm just glad that they ended up letting people go that didn't fit anymore. And what they were going to they, they could have tried to be more, you know, do something different as opposed to keeping like you said, bookers have a shelf life, so does talent. And after a while you have to just say, Hey guys, moving on. And you you know, wish you well, hope you do great. You know, we'll, we'll have a retirement ceremony. If you we'll find you a job in the front office or something. But Paul Jones just didn't fit anymore. Now, I, I never thought Paul Jones was a good manager. Even when I didn't know what a good manager was, quote unquote. I when Paul Jones first came on WTBS in nineteen eighty five, I was like, This guy's terrible. What is he doing on the air? You know, Christian, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little break from talking Starcade 88 for for about five minutes, I guess. Paul Jones was was given the push with Manny Fernandez and Rick Rude right after Starcade 86 as a thank you for him getting his head shaved in the middle of the ring. And I want to read a letter, part of a letter from the Observer that covered Starcade 88. I'll start it in the in the middle. It's written by Bob Shattuck in Cleveland, Ohio, who I was good friends with back in 1988. And mm-hmm. the letter says, you know, did Kerry have his leg amputated for the sole reason of continuing his wrestling career, or was it medically necessary to have the foot amputated? You may view these questions as ludicrous, yet with the rep that the questions I'm asking, you also stated that Kerry was out of it. In what way? Was he drunk, drugged, mentally stupid? There are so many gray areas that you leave open. I, for one, would prefer if you aren't going to give details to substantiate some of your statements, then perhaps it would be best if you didn't make the statements in the first place. All these questions and no answers. Let's be honest. I'm willing to bet that 75% of your readers subscribe to get dirt on the heroes they watch week to week on television or at the arenas. I know that I do. I talk to a lot of people. Keep that in mind. I talk to a lot of people who have the same opinion and some who have different opinions. We all know that you know the answers to the questions we ask week after week, or I would get insulted when I feel that you aren't telling the whole story. When you know the whole story, and I believe you do, or I wouldn't be writing. Examples abound. Why were Don Morocco and Junkyard Dog fired? Are there any grains of truth to the rumors about Rick Martell and Tom Zank? What's the real story, or at least in your opinion, on Bruiser Brody's murder? We all want to know. It makes for great reading and some lots of phone fun with others. What changes do you know will be coming up for the NWA? Finally, maybe I'm going overboard, but I really have strong feelings on this. I admire the work you do, and without the Observer, I'd be lost in keeping up with the greatest hobby I've ever come up with. But I feel there are a ton of us who would like to know so much more, and we get frustrated when we feel that newsworthy items are being held from us. Christian, I don't remember. But I, I will swear right now, I will bet every dollar I have that Bob Shattuck wrote this letter after being on the phone with me because there's so much there was so much going on in the NWA and the wrestling world in general that, you know, Dave knew more than, you know, there was more going on than what was being reported in the Observer and the Torch. And I'm kind of proud to say that I was like one of those people who knew a little more. I knew, you know, obviously I read the Observer and I, I knew everything that was being reported there, but I knew some of the stuff that wasn't being reported. And J.J. Dillon allegedly being placated with that Clash of the Champions finish after being obliviated by Jim Cornette week after week on TV is one of those things that I just kind of heard on the side. That was that was interesting that you told me that because I never knew that. But I mean, it shows <laughs> me to know that to know that JJ felt he had to have his ego stroke because, I mean, essentially, I, I would have asked JJ. You you saw Cornette up close and personal for years. You had to know getting into a war of words with him was pointless. It wasn't going to. <laughs> it's like me getting into a diss match with like I don't know 
it's like if I if I'm it's like me getting into a dismatch with, with or trying to freestyle with Snoop Dogg or or like you know think I can go toe to toe with someone uh, you know Bernie Mac or Cat Williams if they're going to insult me. You can't. You had to know your style. JJ was very serious as a manager, and to go try to go quip for quip with 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 Cornette, homie, that was that's on you. No one told you, no one told you to think you were on that level to to, to do something like that. But it's just. Too many of us read the Observer back then and knew things that, as I said, now the wrong people know the, the stuff that we that we used to know, and that's kind of, that's kind of an unfortunate situation. Yeah, I mean, I would be on the phone with different people who were, you know would tell me different things, and you know, we talked about the uh, the feud between the Midnight Express and Tully and Arn. Tully Blanchard and Bobby Eaton hated each other, and that didn't make it into the Observer, but it was pretty well known. And that, that just added another interesting dynamic into that view that these guys had real life heat. Yep, especially the fact that and Art and Bobby were very very close. That was that's not that's not that's true. Art and Bobby were very good friends, but you know Tully. From what I'm hearing, everyone thinks Tully was just a flat out putz. So I mean, a lot of people, enough people say that to the point where I've been around Tully. He's a funny guy, but he's a putz. I know, and it, it makes me every time I hear about his daughter, I'm thinking, you know, it's not it's not too shocking to me that that, that his daughter's kind of got, dare I say, part of his personality of rubbing people the wrong way. But you know, Tully can, Tully can be a lot of things, but the main thing is that you know, it's the stuff. This is like every other athlete we know. You're not going to get along with everybody all the time. It's just a matter of mm-hmm. you, you have to kind of manage. It's like we hear about this stuff in locker rooms. Guys are upset. Guys don't like this. Guys don't like that. Now it's just, you know, now it's funny how we 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 know too much about athletes now to begin with. Now and now, and I think the first thing we all kind of learned about was wrestling, so to speak. Now we now we know more about athletes than we should know. No, I mean the only the only place where everyone gets along in the locker room is the movies and TV. That's it. And. You've got enough guys with big egos on the road together. You're going to have guys who just don't like each other. It's that simple. You hear people say, oh, everyone liked Bobby Eaton. No, not everyone liked Bobby Eaton. You know, Bobby Eaton had heat with Steve Williams for for whatever reason. You mean uh, Steve Austin or Steve Dr. Death? Uh, Dr. Death, excuse me. No, that's interesting. I didn't know that. But if you did... Hey, that's 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 on that's that's on that's on Steve Williams. But you know, Bobby even got along with people. But it's yeah, it's going to happen where people don't get along all the time, and it does happen. So it's it's life. So that that's the way it yeah. goes. I mean, Steve Williams was a guy. He had a gruff personality. I was in Philadelphia once in in '88, and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get, get take my camera. I'll get my picture with Steve Williams. He's like, Steve Pitt Williams is not gonna take your picture with you. He's just he's not gonna do it. Well, mm-hmm. that means I'm absolutely getting my picture taken with Steve Williams. Not only am I getting getting the picture, I'm proving someone wrong. And I just walked up to him I'm like, Steve, I, I you know what did I say to him? I'm like, you know. I think it's great that you wear your orange bowl rings, all of them, all of the time. That's fantastic. Can I take a quick look? And now we're not talking about wrestling. Now we're talking about his orange bowl rings. I'm like, hey, can I get a picture with you real quick? Oh, sure, man. And I got the picture. But Steve, you know, he had that reputation as a guy, you know. Because you, you broke it down to a human level. That's why. Because you talked to him about something other than wrestling first. That broke the ice. And so he's not just, you're not just a guy looking for a picture. You're a guy looking to. You, you know something about his life. Hey, you were in all American Oklahoma. Let me see your Orange Bowl. How many how many times did he play in the Orange Bowl anyway? Was it four or was it three? I think three. I think uh, he he played. He started as a freshman in Oklahoma, and I think Nebraska got in once. Right, because I was saying I know one year he uh, something where something I was something where he either missed the game or they didn't make it. But I mean, it don't, that takes us back to when the Orange Bowl actually meant something. But <laughs> now, yeah. Now, now, now it's now way it's back little, in time. Yeah, when I was a little kid. But that's it's good to know that you, that Steve didn't bite your face off for just <laughs> wanting for wanting a picture. And I've said this a million times before. If you think Steve Williams looks big on TV, you should you should stand right next to him. That man was a giant. His neck looks like the big like someone's like my whole body. I mean, he just looks like, <laughs> he looks like a huge individual. So it's almost like I told someone recently, I said, you will appreciate this. I said, you, Larry Bird is a big man. I said, you, if you've never seen Bird in person, he may be, he's a legit 6'10", who basically looks like he's seven feet. 
And I always tell people that's a big country dude. So I, I tell you, Library that was a big man. So don't don't do not do not get fooled by you know. Don't think he was slow either. He that was a big man who could move. Yeah, I mean, like I said, they everything is relative. You know, Larry Bird might not have looked huge on a basketball court with a bunch of guys who are seven feet tall, but I've never stood next to Larry Bird. But I mean, he, a guy who's six foot nine is he, big. You no, know, he's a he's a big. When I say big, I mean like you know, country big. You know, like you know, yeah. That's what I mean. That, he was big. <laughs> I was like, people talk about you would body up Larry Bird. I said, I said the hell you would. He would put you. In <laughs> he would. That I've seen him in, in, in watching. I was but watching an NBA game. In person, watching it via television is different. I've seen Bird up close. That is a big, that is a big old man. One guy, and not to get way off the subject, I saw up close. You know who Purvis Ellison is, right? Ner- Never nervous, Purvis, of course. Of course, and he's he's like six, legit six ten, six eleven, and dude. I stood next to him, and oh my god, that guy was a, a giant. I was a midget next to him. He, was, he had the longest arms I've ever. He, he, he's another guy should have been better than he was, but. We can talk hoops at another time. I don't. Yeah, do, I don't, exactly. I don't Brandon Rice is appreciating this. If he, if he, if he, <laughs> well, there was so much to talk about. NWA 1988, Starcade 88, that we broke this down into two episodes. We will have part two for everyone next week. I want to thank Christian Body for doing this show both this week and next week. I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum, this opportunity to hang out and talk wrestling. I want to thank all of you for listening. That's really big. Thank you so much. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing this podcast. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day. 